coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. This is 112BK. On the show today, what the new Republican tax bill will mean for New Yorkers, getting sex ed into local schools, and a film that focuses on HIV and the African-American community. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us today. So this has been getting a bit of attention in the last couple of days. Podcast host slash producer Sam Cedar was recently let go from his gig as contributor at MSNBC. Cedar hosts his own show, The Majority Report, here in Brooklyn. He's also a comedian and longtime progressive commentator. He was let go presumably because of an eight-year-old tweet discovered by alt-right trolls bent on taking him down. The tweet was a bit of satire, maybe a bit over the top, rightly criticizing those who suggested that because Roman Polanski is so talented, he deserved lenience for rape. Cedar tweeted in 2009, don't care regarding Polanski, but I hope if my daughter is ever raped, it is by an older, truly talented man with a great sense of mise-en-scene. Mike Cernovich, remember the Pizzagate nincompoop? <laughs> and others in the alt-right either misunderstand satire or willfully took his comments out of context, suggesting Cedar condones rape, child rape, and then baited MSNBC into letting him go. And they did. So that's messed up. MSNBC, if you want to correct the record, feel free to get in touch. Now, I'm not defending Cedar or his shtick, but come on, Cernovich et al. Let's not forget it's progressive slash liberals who are putting morals over politics. Franken voluntarily going before an ethics committee and fellow senators calling on him to resign, John Conyers retiring, and it's conservatives endorsing accused pedophile Roy Moore and backing a 16-time accused sex offender president just so they can pass their precious tax cuts. And now this idiot army seems to be going after Cedar's advertisers. I understand going after Bill O'Reilly's advertisers, the Fox hosts off accused of sexual assault, and Hannity's for defending Roy Moore and attacking his accusers. But going after advertisers of someone rhetorically standing up to rape culture? What the hell? <laughs> All I can say is, Sam, if you're hearing this, come on the show and let's talk. I'm not close to being done venting. Oh, and by the way, it looks like people have set up a GoFundMe page for the Majority Report, and you can find that in the obvious places online. On the show, more on the tax deal and its bottom line for New Yorkers, getting a sex ed curriculum into underserved schools, and filmmakers talk about HIV. But first, a few things. This is mind-boggling. On Tuesday, the Brooklyn DA announced their dismantling of the largest fraud enterprise in the office's history when they brought charges of healthcare fraud against 20 individuals and 14 corporations. According to the DA's office, the fraudsters went into low-income Brooklyn neighborhoods looking for individuals with Medicare or Medicaid cards. They would then offer these folks a few bucks to go into participating doctors' offices for batteries of tests, no treatment that would then be billed back to the insurance providers. The participants in the scheme would receive the money from the provider and then launder it offshore. Over the course of three years, it is alleged they received approximately $146 million. I have no words. No words. <laughs> Tarana Burke is Time's Person of the Year. Well, her and many of the other silence breakers who have stepped forward and encouraged others to do the same to eradicate rape culture in America. Congratulations, Tarana. 
She was on the show a few weeks back, and you can catch that interview on our SoundCloud page and our episode of Going In with Brian Vines that also features her. Just go on Brick TV's YouTube channel. Remember Paul Manafort's property on Union Street in Carroll Gardens, the one that is seemingly part of his money laundering scheme, the scheme that he was recently indicted for? Well, the Department of Buildings issued a stop work order on the house after a recent inspection showed some violations. But according to local residents, that stop work order hasn't actually stopped the work. They say that construction continues at night and out of sight, though they can hear it. Is Manafort really planning on living there? I thought Robert Mueller had another residence in mind for him. And I didn't know that Brooklyn was home to the worst post office in the city. Apparently it is, in Kensington, to be precise. That's what the New York Times said back in 2009. In that article, some even called it a hostile environment. Well, according to a recent report in Patch, it's gotten worse. <laughs> Apparently, some packages were left unattended for hours in a Kensington apartment building with big notes on them that said, please do not touch, mailwoman will be here shortly. What is that, one resident said, concerned about the mail being stolen, checks being lost, etc. Wait, what's that? People say Flatbush has the worst post office. Oh, oh wait, that's Bushwick Station? Oh, wait, Bed-Stuy is the worst? In America? Okay, I get it. Happy holidays, all you package senders. We'll be right back with an economics reporter from Slate to help calm us down, or maybe fire us up about the new tax plan. Don't go away. Yesterday, we talked about the Republican tax plan and how it would affect higher ed. Today, let's talk about how it would affect us as New Yorkers. Slate reporter Jordan Weissman has referred to this tax bill as a win-lose situation, with capital, all the big businesses out there, the winner, and labor, the loser. But exactly how will that happen? We've invited him back to talk about what this tax plan means for those of us who aren't running million-dollar businesses. Jordan, welcome back to 112BK. Thanks for having me. First of all, can you just talk to me a little bit about why this tax plan is a win-lose? <laughs> why? Why do people do bad things yeah, in this world? Yeah, why do people do bad things <laughs> in this world? Why is greed yeah. such a oh, pervasive God. thing? Yeah, I think you need like a philosopher for that. But, okay, so like, <laughs> so you know, the bottom line is that the Republican Party has designed a tax plan that is very much geared to rewarding people who own you know, investors in big corporations mm -hmm. or very wealthy business owners right. uh, for the most part if you run what's known as a pass-through, like you're a, you're a partner, you have a partnership of some sort, um, you'll, make a, you know, you'll do well in this plan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of regular workers will also get a tax cut. There are you know, regular middle-class people who will do okay. They don't have a lot coming to them. Their rates will go right. down somewhat. Um, but those big cuts for corporations and business need to get paid for somehow. Um, and so, you know, Republicans have chosen to, done to do this in part by getting rid of deductions that happen to be very important in places like New York and blue mm -hmm. states. Um, perhaps the most important of all is what's known as a state and local tax deduction. Um, you know, here in New York, you do your taxes, you pay a lot to New York State, New York City, um, and then you get whatever you pay in taxes to our local governments, you get to take that off of your federal return. Um, you're not gonna be able to do that with income taxes anymore uh, under the Republican plan. Obviously, you 
pay income, <laughs> you know, that's, you know that's, that, that's important for a lot of us, at least if you itemize. Um, so that's going to affect a lot of people in the tri-state area. Uh, they're also going to be limiting uh, the amount of property tax that homeowners can deduct. Yes. Um, and you know they're limiting it to $10,000, which sounds like a lot, but you'd be shocked how much people pay in property taxes in some of the wealthier parts of uh, New Jersey and New York. Um, so that's going to affect people's taxes. It's also, frankly, going to uh, probably hurt home values. Now talk to me a little bit more about that. And yeah. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> I do have a little bit of personal interest. Yeah. My fiance and I were thinking about trying to buy a home in 2019. Should we wait? <laughs> no, 2019 would be a great time to buy. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah, I so also full disclosure, I, I do own an apartment. Um, so um, I have co-op out in Kensington. Uh, Basically, there are a lot of um, details in this tax bill that are going to take away some of the advantages, the tax advantages that now exist mm -hmm. uh, to owning a home. Um, one version of it, the House version, actually directly cuts the mortgage interest deduction, mm -hmm. um, but sort of in a way that would mostly affect wealthier owners. Right. Um, there are other changes to the bill that you have to kind of really get into the weeds, but that also are going to sort of um, reduce the tax advantages of home ownership. And then, of course, you have the property tax issue. That's mm -hmm. another kind of direct attack. And so that's going to cause home, that, that's going to kind of shave some value off of home prices across the country, but especially in blue states. And that's sort of the theme of this tax bill is a lot of losers are people who live in democratic strongholds. Right. Um, you know, and there was an analysis from Moody's Analytics uh, recently mm -hmm. that looked at what the Senate bill, for instance, would do mm -hmm. uh, to home values around here. And, you know, in New Jersey, or parts of New Jersey, you're looking at 10% uh, reduction in prices. Ooh. In Manhattan, you're looking at the same. Queens and uh, Brooklyn, um, not necessarily as high. You're looking at more of like 2% reduction. Um, right. But so people who are listening don't freak out totally. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that prices are necessarily going to fall from where they are right now. Mm -hmm. It might mean that they're not going to go up. They'll be lower okay. than they otherwise would have been. New Jersey, it's bad. They're probably going to drop. we're used to, yeah. in New York and New Jersey, we're used to housing prices going go up. up. Yes. Like, a lot. Yeah, so some people, some people might even see that and say, hey, we can use our price right. slowing down. There are probably right. some people who are happy about that result. There, you know, it's it's incumbent homeowners are kind of the losers right. there. Um, but it's still just one more way that, uh, you know, people around the city are going to kind of, you know, uh, it's one more thing people around the city are going to have to complain about from this bill. Right. Well, I mean, Cuomo, a few other people have said that this bill is actually an assault on blue states. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's not crazy. I, it's yeah. kind of right. Uh, I think it's, you could even say it's part of a wider Republican assault on the way blue states operate between immigration mm. restrictionism, mm -hmm. um, some of their, you know, their attempts in the health care bill to essentially strip funding from states that expanded Medicaid and give it to states that didn't. There are mm -hmm. lots of things like this. Um, the state and local tax deduction, you know, by um, eliminating it or by largely eliminating it, um, that makes it harder for places like New York or New Jersey or Massachusetts to mm -hmm. raise taxes and fund social services. Right. Um, and that's what a lot of people are worried about, that in a sense this is going to become an um, attack through the tax code against the social compact in the yeah. Northeast and in California. Um, so yeah, it's, it's cause for concern. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's some truth to that. I think mm -hmm. that one of the goals here 
uh, it's not always explicit, but is to make it harder for blue states to raise taxes. I think it's, you know, the, the conservative agenda isn't just to um, lower federal taxes, it's to lower them in the states. We've seen that play out time and time again. Right. Do you think that this will make it harder for some places to attract talent? A few people have said that that might be the case. Um, I don't. I don't think so. I think yeah. um, in the end, people come to New York because they come. They want to come to New York. They go to California right. because they want to go to California, and that's where the jobs are, and right. that's where you know creative people go to make the next you know big software breakthrough or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think this is going to you know fundamentally uh, rewire the you know American economy. Mm -hmm. um, I do think it is in some not so subtle ways. A assault on parts of the uh, uncertain states' economies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, will you know? I think one a bigger issue than whether or not people want to move certain places is will people want to, for instance, like you know, pursue a graduate degree if right. the House bill goes through or parts of the House bill go through that penalize uh, PhD students. Right. That to me is much more of a concern. So how do you see this playing out? Uh, <laughs> and specifically for us here in New York, um, as they try to reconcile so, these things. Yeah, so there, you know, there are two bills right now. There's mm -hmm. the one the House passed, and there's the one the Senate passed. Right. And there was um, a little bit of concern that maybe the House would just pass the Senate version to try mm -hmm. and uh, speed this process up, but the Senate. Uh, Screwed up royally, and essentially, uh, in with and their in their kind of furious last minute negotiations, mm -hmm. um, made a like two hundred and eighty nine billion dollar mistake. Um, in that they they accidentally raised taxes on corporations in a way they didn't mean to. Um, the result is they can't. They have to kind of negotiate these two bills now and come to some sort of compromise between them. Um, so how that's going to play out because is. I think it's pretty hard to predict because you have to abide by the Senate rules, but also the House Republicans can be very strident about certain things. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden you have the Californians trying to get back the property tax deduction. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are all sorts of shenanigans going on. And right. so I, I, I really don't know. I think, though, you know, if I had... If I were a betting man and I wasn't worried about my taxes going up right now, <laughs> if I had money to bet, right. I, I would guess that the taxes are probably going to, you know, that uh, that they're probably going to pass something in the end. That's that's my my gut impulse, but I don't know for sure. All right, well, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on here. Thanks for having me. I always wish we had a little bit more time, but I know we'll have you back. Yeah, absolutely, fantastic. Up next, let's talk about sex, ed, in schools, and how one organization is making sure it's being taught. World AIDS Day was December 1st, and we've got a couple segments today to commemorate it. First, think back to your own high school health class, if you had one. What do you remember? A lot of awkward giggling, maybe falling asleep in the back of the class during yet another video that made sex look like anything but fun? But many schools, including some in Brooklyn, don't have the resources to provide information about sex and sexually transmitted disease. That's where Peer Health Exchange steps in and both its New York Executive Director, Rachel Morgan Peters, and Program Manager, Zayla Jarrett, came into the studio yesterday to talk about their work. Thanks for joining us on 112BK. Thank you for having us. So first of all, can you just explain to me why it's so important to have the Peer Health Exchange? Yes, absolutely. 
Um, so at Pure Health Exchange, we, as you mentioned, we're at, mm -hmm in five cities, we're a national nonprofit, um, and we train college students to teach health education in public schools. So here in New York, we're in 50 high schools wow. who would not otherwise be receiving the critical information, yes, around sexual health and also mm -hmm. around mental health and substance use. Um, and we, we work together in partnership with the Department of Education a lot of, um, by pushing into high school during the school day because we believe it's essential that young people are, are receiving critical health information. When we talk about this and we're talking about specifically high school students, why is it so important to get to them in high school? What are you hearing? What are they saying? Definitely. Uh, so our program model focuses a lot on ninth and 10th graders, actually, mm -hmm. as we think that's an important transitory year in a young person's life. They're going from middle school to high school, which we know presents a new set of challenges, oftentimes a new set of social dynamics. You're engaging mm -hmm. with older folks who may be making decisions um, mm -hmm. that feel exciting to you or new, but again, don't have the same experience. So I think our program model is really impactful because we come in, in that ninth and 10th grade year to provide health education and information that really sets those young people up for success. So um, as we know in New York, people are required to, or mandated to have one semester of health education in middle school and one in high school. Typically that's happening in 11th and 12th grade. So we know that our program is actually providing resources and much needed conversation for those younger folks until they're able to get that much needed health information um, from their high school. The quality of the health education, again, can vary um, based on the person teaching it and kind of what their interests are, but definitely getting them at that point before they start making those decisions that will impact their academic and future careers by talking about sex, mental health, drugs, right. and substance use. How are students faring better? Do they have a better understanding of their sexual health and of their mental health? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's a great question. Um, so we, we have done a, a quasi-experimental control trial, so we, we're really invested in evaluation and not wasting the time of our college students and most importantly of the high school students with our program if it's not successful. Mm -hmm. um, what we found is definitely there's an increase in knowledge and, um, and skills of the students that we serve, especially mm -hmm. around um, sort of pregnancy prevention methods right. um, and around um, including condom use. Uh, and around talking to a trusted adult, which is a really important link for young people when thinking about mental health. So if you're in a situation where you are experiencing poor mental health, how, who are you talking to about that? Mm -hmm. And how are you advocating for yourself or for a friend? Um, and we've also seen a nice connection around increase in access to care. So meaning right. more young people are actually going to a clinic um, who have been participating in our program and feel empowered to do that. Mm -hmm. Zayla, why college students specifically? I know you were talking about, you know, these students in ninth and 10th grade being around older kids who are making decisions, and that's part of the reason why you want to talk to them a little bit yeah. early. But then you have college students being the ones teaching them. Why is that? And like, what's the, what's the uh, goal behind that? Yeah. Uh, so I actually think that's probably the, my favorite part about our program model is the near-peer experience of having college volunteers come in to have these conversations. Um, I actually was a college volunteer for four years oh, wow. when I attended Columbia University. Um, and so from 2011 to 2015, I did this work on the ground and directly. Um, and from both that perspective and managing volunteers currently, you really do get to start seeing, or sorry, start seeing students who are engaging with these uh, near-peer older folks around really crucial questions and oftentimes mm -hmm. questions that they have like a burning hunger for, like they want the information, but the folks in, who are around them, adults, adult allies, advocates right. in the school, sometimes are uncomfortable talking about it. They are mm -hmm. uncomfortable going into 
like especially like anal sex, oral sex, um, sex in very specific and concrete and actionable ways, which young people need information around. They're not just seeking specifics or abstinence-only education. They're having a lot of questions around, I'm going to make this decision. Can you support me in making that decision? How are we empowering them and making space for them to think about it um, before that decision gets there? And then it really allows them to like flourish and succeed as they decide to, again, if they decide to have sex or if they decide to like pursue a therapist or talking to someone about their mental health. Right. How can can we support them in getting them to that place that they're comfortable? Why isn't this just mandated that every kid should have to go through this process if they're in school to learn about these very real dangers and also the options that they have to deal with their natural inclinations and bodies? Yes. Why? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, it, no, it's. Uh, I think, you know, you said this so beautifully in the beginning, right? Like, we're in Brooklyn, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, here in Brooklyn, we serve a thousand young people. We know that these young people want to be receiving this information. And right. we know in Brooklyn, this is a progressive town. We want this information out there. Why isn't right. it happening? But I'm from Indiana, right? <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Indiana, and I and it's not there. It's not there, it's yeah. It's not happening. Yeah, well, and it's also not happening in the way it should in, our, in Chicago and in Boston and in San Francisco and L.A., where we mm -hmm. also have programs. Um, I would say here in New York, it's we do have, as Zayla mentioned, we do have um, a mandate for there to be one semester of health education taught in high school. Um, but that is often programmed 11th or 12th grade. Mm -hmm. uh, so by often, I mean about 50% of the time, wow. which is, uh, just so you know, there's 90,000 ninth graders. So that means you know, 45,000 ninth graders are not receiving any of this. 45,000 10th graders are not receiving this, right? Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean for the health of our city? Um, and additionally, there's only 151 certified health teachers in the school system. So there's 1.1 million public school students in our city, bigger than some countries, uh, and there are 151 certified health educators. So we are not prioritizing health. We're not thinking about um, the importance of our young people's mental health and physical health in our schools in the way that we should. Um, why? I. I why? I really, I, I share the same question that you do. I do think that there is an appetite as a public school parent. I know mm -hmm. I want that for my child. Mm -hmm. um, and the parents I talk to throughout the city also do. So right. I think there's a, an advocacy piece that we as parents can be taking to ask our schools why this is not happening when and how it should be. Well, thank you both for being here and for talking about these very important things. I appreciate it. And I hope we can have you guys on again in the future and we can get into this a little bit more. We would love it. Coming up, a film about a difficult decision. When and how do you tell the person you love that you're HIV positive? Here's a clip. After 90 days, don't go. Don't start what you can't finish. Listen. Listen. Go ahead, baby. I want it to be a bride. <laughs> they all have issues. There is no right girl. She is Mrs. Right. You don't know her. I've known her since I, I met her. <sighs> what is it? Too much. I just hope I'm doing the right thing. Jessica is a wonderful woman. Do you love her? Taylor, <laughs> I have to tell you something. So you're in a new relationship. Everything's going great. You're in love. You hit the three-month mark. Things are progressing, and for most couples, the next steps seem obvious. But not for the couple in the film 90 Days. For them, it's a bit more complicated. 
This love story has won over 25 festival awards from the Pan-African Film Festival to, most recently, the Hollywood Film Festival. Here to talk about it and its wide-reaching effects on the African-American community in AIDS education and awareness are Richard E. Pelzer II, executive producer of the film. Thank you for being on the show. As well as Kim Kennedy from the organization HIV Stops With Me. Welcome to 112BK. Thank you. Thank you. Can we just start? How did this film come to be? Where did it begin? Well, thank you very much for having me today. And uh, the film came from the wonderful mind of our writer, uh, co-director, and executive producer, Nathan Hale Williams. Mm -hmm. um, he's based out in Los Angeles, and he gave me a call um, early 2016 mm -hmm. and said, you know, Richard, um, I'm looking to do this amazing love story. It's really a love story. And um, we would love to, to work it out. And after um, looking at it, we decided that we were going to do it as a short to come up with a, a proof of concept, mm -hmm. um, shop it around and to raise some money. And now we have this amazing short film, 90 Days, that uh, has won all of these awards. And in 2018, we're looking to, to make it a full feature film. Oh my goodness, which is very exciting. Yes. Very, very exciting. Kim, talk to me about your role in this process. Um, well, the main character, um, can I say it? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I was like, oh my God. Um, the main character, she's HIV positive mm -hmm. and um, heterosexual woman. She's dating this guy, and you know, it's, you, I identify with her so much because um, I'm in a relationship, I'm married, and you kind of can go back and remember how it was to disclose to somebody and mm -hmm. tell them that you're HIV positive while still. Um, remembering who you are and what you value and not letting anybody else basically like break you down and remember that you know you are worthy and you are you can love right. like love is possible when it comes to this film and is so. the film based on a personal story it's actually um, a, a story, uh, as I said, created by Nathan Hill Williams. Mm -hmm. He was uh, a, one of the uh, writers for Essence.com. It oh, came wow. out of a piece that he actually did there um, of 90 days on you know, how long you should you know, hold out before right. you actually get into a relationship and ex extend it from there. So. Wow. I also heard that you guys have screened this at a few faith-based organizations. Yes. Can you talk to me about how that conversation came to be at these organizations and what the response has been like from them? Sure. Um, our first, one of the things that we decided that we were going to do is to, to enter into a number of different film festivals, but it was also important for us to um, get out into the community. So mm -hmm. one of our first um, film festivals that we were in was the International Film Festival of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. um, and we partnered up with um, um, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation in the Cleveland area, and they took us to Amani Temple. So it was the first church that we got a chance to really show the film at. Mm -hmm. And the response was actually amazing. Um, and we decided that that could be a, a really great platform for us to be able to continue this conversation because, you know, the, the black church has a very important role in our community. Oh, yes. um, and for a long time, they were very slow I'd say some of them are still very slow on really talking about the um, the subject matter and the stigma that comes with with um, living with HIV, mm -hmm. um, and the 
one of the things that uh, we decided that we really wanted to, to make happen is this, this conversation. After you watch the film, it's mm -hmm. 20 minutes long, um, it really forces you to have a, a, a deeper conversation on what's next and what's right. now. And Kim, this is actually work that you do. You're an activist in this space. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this film is so important? What do you think its impact could be on the communities that you serve now? Well, I think that, well, I know, it's not even what I think. We don't have films out here. Mm -hmm. we, nobody talks about HIV, and this film puts a light on a lot of what we're going through, what we've experienced, and what a lot of my peers who are positive, mm -hmm. um, what their fears are. So this movie puts a light on everything. Like, okay, right. this is, you know, how she's feeling. This is how he's feeling. Mm -hmm. So it's not even just from her perspective, but it's also from the male's perspective, too. Mm -hmm. And then you don't really see that many heterosexual love stories out there, especially with HIV into it. Yeah, and having a deep conversation about it and what does that look like. Right. So with this movie, it's breaking ground where, you know, it's, Starting that conversation, just like, just like you said, it's starting this conversation for people to have. And these conversations change the world. They end yes. up changing communities and they change people's thoughts on what's going on. This sounds like an amazing film. I cannot wait to see all of it. And I'm, I'm sure that other people are going to be really excited to see all of it. And I wish we had more time to talk about it. Unfortunately, we don't. But I hope we can have you guys back some time to talk a little bit more. Thank you very much. You Hopefully Thank everybody you so can go much. to 90 Days. Um, it's 90daysthefilm.com. 90daysthefilm.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tomorrow, we'll be back with a Yes Man from the Yes Men to talk about income inequality and how far we've come, or not, in the six years since Occupy Wall Street ended. A dispute over the management of a Brooklyn homeless shelter and some crowdsourced local art. Hope to see you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Hagesek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.